Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We are coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, political scientist, author, and nationally syndicated columnist, Dr. Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, political analyst, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. It's being reported signs of progress in peace talks. U.S. expresses skepticism. After a day of talks, Ukrainian negotiators outlined some peace proposals that Russia said it would look into, and Moscow said it would drastically reduce military activity near Kiev and Chernyiv to increase mutual trust and create the necessary conditions for further negotiations. What are we to make of this, and why would the U.S. express skepticism and not optimism unless the U.S. really does not want peace? For insight into this, let's turn to our first guest. He's a Moscow-based international relations and security analyst, Mark Shloboda. As always, Mark, welcome back. Dr. Leon Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical hour. So indulge me this, this long question. Uh, so to me, this is very interesting and I believe very telling. Speaking to lawmakers today, the Pentagon's top general overseeing U.S. troops in Europe said he sees shifting dynamics in the ground domain near Kiev, appearing to confirm that some Russian forces in the region are pulling back. Nonetheless, Blinken expressed skepticism about the latest round of negotiations, saying there is what Russia says and what Russia does. Asked if the U.S. detects that Russia has been shifting its military offensive away from Kiev, Blinken said he couldn't say, adding he can't tell you whether these statements reflect a reorientation on eastern and southern Ukraine or whether this is a means by which Russia is trying to detect and deceive. Mark, is this a demonstration of the conflict between the Pentagon and the warmongers in the State Department? No. I, uh, this time, I don't think so. I okay. think that this is an accurate reading. I think that after an initial attempt uh, during the first days of the intervention um, uh, at a decapitation strike at Kiev, uh, that failed. Uh, some uh, sources have suggested um, that there was uh, a plan, an, a perhaps a Russian intelligence plan, uh, that uh, they supposedly had um, forces on the inside of the Kiev regime, political forces, uh, military forces, who would either stage a uh, rebellion uh, or end or stand down Ukrainian uh, some units of Ukrainian military forces in Kiev at the time of the intervention. Uh, so either that was compromised or um, or it could not have been true. But anyway, it seems that the, the Russia's initial mad dash thunder runs to Kiev uh, were not successful. Um, and um, instead, uh, Russia then proceeded to uh, pump uh, more. Uh, military troops uh, into 
the north there from Belarus uh, into the area of Kiev. Um, it seems that a plan B was an attempt to uh, keep forces uh, in western Ukraine, in Kiev, pinned down with the need to defend the capital so that they couldn't relieve uh, the bulk of the Ukrainian military, which was in the east, pinned down in Donbass, and from the very early, it was evident being encircled. I think that Russia's um, now taking advantage, kind of unilaterally, uh, of these negotiations to suddenly, um, you know, say that they are scaling down military activity around Kiev and Jornogov, um is actually, you know, what they were planning to do militarily now anyway. Um, I don't think that they're going to be completely withdrawing. I think they're going to be hunkering down and continue to present a possible threat while reducing the amount of attrition uh, that they are, are facing at the moment. Um, they're, they're not attempting to encircle Kiev at this point. Either they failed or that wasn't the plan B. Um, I do not believe that there is any seriousness on either side for these negotiations at this point. I, I don't think that the Russians' uh, goals uh, for the intervention have been met yet. Um, uh, th their demands that, that they have made have, you know, whether we're talking denazification, uh, demilitarization of Ukraine, um, the recognition of Crimea, recognition of the, uh, as part of Russia, recognition of, uh, the Donbass republics as independent. Uh, at this point, not even the entirety of the Donbass republics administrative region has been completely taken yet, uh, with significant gains in Mariupol uh, in the last few days that that city looks like it has essentially um, you know uh, been fallen or, or been liberated depending on your reading of it um, but uh, and and the mayor uh, of uh, Mariupol the Kiev regime appointed mayor of, of Mariupol who is not in Mariupol by the way he escaped <laughs> quite a while ago um, he has announced that the city is effectively in Russian hands. That will free up a lot of forces there to complete the envelopment of the main bulk of the Ukrainian military in the east. Then Russia will either attempt to force them to surrender or eliminate them. And then that will be used to push either for further military gains in the east or as uh, to re-enter negotiations with a stronger uh, leverage over the regime in Kiev with the bulk of its military having been uh, taken from the field one way or another, uh, and then to force their, you know, uh, you know, the recognition, for instance, of Donbass and Crimea, um, uh, you know, within their demands and, and perhaps uh, other factors as well. And it would have created, gone a great deal more towards the demilitarization de facto of of Ukraine. But um, I, I think there's a lot of jar jar diplomacy going on. And I'm personally not going to believe anything from either side until I see it on paper. And even once it's on paper, we have to remember that the regime in Kiev once agreed to a power sharing agreement back in 2014 uh, on uh, February 21st, the, the evening before uh, they chased uh, the uh, president Yanukovych uh, out of Kiev. 
And they also agreed to two rounds of Minsk Accords, uh, both which they re then refused to implement. So um, I don't believe that a diplomatic solution is in the near present, and it can only really be forced on Kiev and its Western backers from a very strong position of strength. And even then, I wouldn't necessarily trust them. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the reality is when Russia sent their security demands and they were ignored, the writing was on the wall then, and which was this. In order for there to be a diplomatic resolution, there would have to be someone there representing Ukraine. And I mean representing the best interest of the people of Ukraine in that there's nobody in that room doing that, because if that were the case, then the security demands would have been addressed to prevent this. If that were the case, the you know, oh, I could go on and on. So now we have there are people there who are representing the interest of the U.S. empire and the neocons. But as far as the best interest of the people of Ukraine, since there's nobody that will be allowed to do that, the, to me, I mean, I don't want to sound like there's no hope for a re resolution, but I guess I kind of sound like that. At any rate, <laughs> you, your thoughts on what's happening with Germany right now and, you know, the issue about uh, Germany being urged to, quote, stop Putin's war machine and, quote, resist an embargo on Russian energy. There is no embargo. Russia's saying we will sell you the energy and you will pay us in rubles. Now, when Germany says you're violating the contract for starters, you got our money in your bank and you won't give it back. Don't talk to us about the violation of contracts. That would be my answer. But anyway, your thoughts, uh, Mark? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the that the German government headed by Olaf Scholz, a, a fragile government coalition with, with, with the Greens and and the uh, um, the, the pro-business faction uh, is really put itself between a rock and a hard place here uh, by having, you know, sided uh, basically with moved from its original positions of, of effective neutrality uh, over the Ukrainian issue to siding with the U.S. Um, it, it first, it, you know, canceled Nord Stream 2, then it agreed to the U.S. sanctions. And now, um, even as you know, it is denying demands from uh, political forces within the U.S. and within some within the EU to stop the uh, import of Russian energy, something that the government says would collapse the German economy. They're also faced with this, you know, chess move by the Russian president. Uh, saying uh, demanding uh, payment for energy now in rubles, the argument is well, you know, our your your contracts, uh, our contracts, your own sanctions against us have made your currency worthless to us. <laughs> what are we going to do with you? I mean, you are preventing us from using it around the world. You've seized our euros. You know, they, effectively, they're saying because of your economic war on us, we consider your contract as it is null and void. We're still willing to sell you energy, but you will now sell it in the ruble, which will directly counteract your the uh, the uh, intended effects of your own. 
um, uh, sanctions by strengthening the ruble and thus strengthening, you know, the Russian economy. Uh, so um, I, I think I, I, as much as I don't have any sympathy for Olaf Scholz, he he is in a pretty bad position here between domestic political forces, U.S. pressure on him, uh, and now you know the threat of of the German uh, business and industry community saying, uh, uh, hey. Uh, you're going to shut us all down completely. And, the, you know, there there are already a number of businesses, not only in Germany, but across Europe have shut down their factories, saying that already energy prices, uh, whether for gas or, or for electricity, whether that is produced from coal or oil, Russia is the biggest source of all of these uh, for for Europe, uh, and and certainly for for Germany in particular, um, so um, he is under enormous pressure here, and he it will be very politically bad for him either way, whether it collapses the German economy um, or whether. Um, he gives in to Russian demands. Uh, he will take a political blow at home if he shuffles over the rubles or digs up some other type of payment. I don't know the uh, the Chinese currency, the the one or the um, gold or Bitcoin or something that Russia might possibly accept uh, in reply. And you know uh, we've we've recently heard from the United Arab Emirates saying that there is no etern- no alternative on the global market for Russian oil. It's simply the, the, that capacity cannot be made up by any existing country, right? They can't pump that much more to make up that difference. Qatar has said the exact same thing about Russian gas. So whether, you know, in the long run, Germany tries to reduce the amount of Russian energy, it gets – um, then world prices will simply go up an equivalent amount anyway, and th- and that will still ru- Germany will may get its energy eventually. It can't do so at the time being, but let's say in five to ten years from now they try to reduce the Russian energy, they will simply pay much much more and make their economy that much less effective and manageable. We're going to run a little long here because I think the answer to this question is important. So. The Saudis saying what they're saying, the Emiratis saying what they're saying, I think is a direct uh, contradiction to what the United States was hoping for. Was there a miscalculation in the United States mathematics here? Do you think that this is also the uh, Saudis and the Emiratis way of kind of thumbing their noses at Joe Biden? And is this working to Russia's advantage in the short and long term? Yeah, so the Saudis and Emiratis have their own beef uh, politically with Joe Biden uh, because uh, although he has continued uh, against his own campaign promises to support the Saudi uh, invasion and genocide in um, uh, Yemen – uh, he initially uh, tried to say that he wouldn't, and he has politically downplayed 
the military support that he is still giving to them. They are unhappy with that. They want him to declare the Houthis to be a terrorist organization, their their uh, religious and political structures. Uh, Joe Biden has not been willing to do that. Uh, that is one of the reasons for their political hardball. But I, I think that they have other reasons, and they don't necessarily – uh, look forward to a world where they see the U.S. can weaponize the dollar and its control of the global financial systems against the country in that way because they're thinking, hmm, this could be done to us someday. Mm -hmm. So hence their, their cold shoulder not answering Joe Biden's phone calls at the moment. And uh, they're, you know, they're reaching out to China to, to sit down and talk about accepting the Chinese currency for oil instead of the usual trade in the dollar, which would be also be a big game changer and a blow to the U.S. as the global financial currency. I think that the U.S. did calculate this all out. I think that they knew that there wasn't enough excess capacity in the old uh, and how much uh, uh, global prices would go up for energy as a result of this. They simply want the, the German and wider, the European people to suck it up and, and pay the cost for their geopolitical designs for Ukraine. Wow. Mark Sloboda, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis. And we look forward to having you back. Thanks for having me. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. It is reported in Newsweek, Peace Corps advises black volunteers they may be called N-word by Ukrainian refugees. If you are black and are thinking about volunteering to help the people from Ukraine, be careful. MTO News learned that the Peace Corps website explained that black people are likely to face pretty blatant and possible dangerous forms of racism from Ukrainian refugees. And Joe Biden wants to bring a lot of them here. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an American historian who currently holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's one of the most prolific writers of our time. His latest book is entitled The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. So according to the Peace Corps website, people of color face many challenges living in Ukraine as a Peace Corps volunteer. However, African-Americans will confront far more complicated issues for modern parts of Ukraine. African-Americans are part of the community and day-to-day -day life. However, there are many Ukrainians who have never seen a black person before. Their understanding of African-American culture is fueled by the media and African stereotypes. You will generate lots of interest and curious stares. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn, particularly about 
their understanding is fueled by media. Well, this should come as a shock only to the uninformed. Indeed, the U.S. State Department and the White House would be well advised to make sure that these anti-black stereotypes are stamped out. But somehow, I don't think that that will become a major priority. Although, I'd like to share with you the point that with regard to my doing talks on black radio, I noticed early on, after February 24th, 2022, that is to say shortly after the intervention into Ukraine by Russia, that the attitudes of many of the callers on black radio were not necessarily uh, favorable to Moscow. But in an interview I had just the other day, I know I noticed that attitudes had changed sharply. And I think that it has something to do with the reportage concerning how African students were harassed along the Ukraine-Russia border, and also the points raised concerning a disproportionate percentage of nations that either abstained on the censure resolution of Russia in the United Nations or did not bother to show up were African nations. And these nations were led by those in the southern core of the continent with which black Americans have had a close historical relationship because of the similarity of our experiences with settler colonialism, uh, speaking of Zimbabwe, Namibia, South Africa in the first instance. And so if Washington plans, which surely it does, to continue to interfere grossly in the internal affairs of Europe, it would be well advised, it seems to me, to try to stamp out these anti-black attitudes, but that's going to be more than a notion because the forces that they seek to ally with in Eastern Europe oftentimes are of the likes of the much-discussed uh, Azov Battalion, that is to say neo-Nazi forces who never saw a black person that they respected, not to mention white. So Washington is caught in a contradiction. Uh, also caught in a contradiction, I'm afraid to say, are the European nations, that is to say the European Union, because on the one hand, they see Washington as the ultimate guarantor of world imperialism, uh, which is one of the reasons why they have sacrificed so much in order to throw in their lot with regard to this escapade of adventurism in Ukraine. Uh, what I mean by sacrificing, of course, is the protests that you see in Spain, the imminent rise in food prices, the current rise in diesel and gasoline prices. So on the one hand, they rely upon U.S. imperialism, for example, the way France does in its neo-empire in Africa, relying on U.S. aerial and satellite assets to keep the Africans in line. On the other hand, intelligent European opinion recognizes that this relationship with the United States puts them in danger and peril because the United States sees the European Union as a threat to its global hegemony. So they, too, are caught in the contradiction. However, I don't think you have to be an oracle to suggest 
that ultimately, in terms of survival, the EU, or at least intelligent uh, leaders of the EU, and I'm not sure there are any, but to the extent that there are some, they're going to have to rethink, if not disrupt, this dysfunctional relationship with uh, U.S. imperialism, uh, because obviously it's threatening life and limb. In, in some ways, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you two recall the late comedian Jack Benny. Yes. Right. Jack Benny, of course, uh, he had this shtick about being cheap. Mm-hmm. And his favorite bit was when a robber approaches him <laughs> and says, your money or your life. I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah, Jack Benny says, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And so that's the problem with the EU. They're putting this idea of capitalism and exploiting Africa and the global south above the question of survival, which is what is at play, particularly after the intemperate remarks of the U.S. president uh, in Poland, uh, where he basically called for regime change, tried to walk it back, but uh, as the president himself has acknowledged, when the president speaks, folks accept that generally as policy, as well they should. And so it seems to me that uh, just as I've told Garland previously, that screenwriters use this dramatic device whereby pressure reveals character uh, in terms of the actors depicting a role. Well, there's no more pressure than war. And war is two revealing truths. Uh, to use another metaphor, it reminds me of the metaphor uh, that says that uh, you don't realize who's swimming naked until the tide goes up. And that is to say, we're at one of those uh, very uh, striking, intriguing moments in world history where a lot of realizations are coming clear. And another realization that's coming clear, besides the fact that it's on the table whether or not U.S. imperialism will fight anti-black racism, I tend to doubt it. It's on the table whether or not the European Union will have a disruptive relationship with U.S. imperialism. I'm questioning that, too. But also, with regard to some of our friends on the left, I would like to see them, when they analyze this conflict and conflicts like this going forward, that they not look at it simply in a bilateral sense, that is to say, Washington versus Moscow or NATO versus Russia, that they look at it intelligently as a global question, look at China, look at India, look at Southern Africa, as we have just done, because that is the ultimate story. Uh, fundamentally, looking at it in a global context will tell you what the ultimate importance is. It'll also give you a tip and a hint as to uh, which forces are worthy of support and which forces are not worthy of support. And in that light, as we've said on this program before, uh, one of the likely consequences of this conflict uh, will be De-dollarization, you already see that with regard to India and Russia moving away from the dollar and their bilateral trade, with regard to Saudi Arabia and China moving away from the dollar. And I think it's not premature to start talking in this sense of what will be the ultimate consequence of this conflict in light of the talks in Turkey 
which seem to have made progress in terms of some sort of moving toward a resolution, although, of course, it would be premature to say that this conflict has ended. You know, what's interesting about the conversation, I think, about this and listening to you, there are two different conversations in the black and brown world, in the world that has been um, oppressed by colonialism for literally centuries that I, I, I really didn't see coming when this happened. Oh, and, and mainly because, yeah, I mean, again, we can talk about the, the Soviet Union. We're talking about history. We're talking about India saying you know, I kind of remember what the Brit- Brits did to us for this, starving 12 million people, et cetera, where we're looking at countries, Indonesia, um, Vietnam, countries that have had genocides at the hands of the U.S. empires and on and on and on. This, to me, has opened up a colonial wound throughout the world, worldwide, even in the Middle East for recent years. It's opened a colonial wound that I didn't see coming, and I don't think the U.S. empire and NATO saw coming, and now they're dealing with something, another element that they had no idea that was going to be present. Your thoughts? Well, that's clearly true. Obviously, many African nations are still upset about what happened in Libya in 2011 when the United Nations mandate was exceeded and it led to regime change despite the protestations of the African Union. And then I think that the U.S. and some of our friends on the left, too, are actually overestimating the reaction in Eastern Europe. I mean, you oftentimes hear from many of our friends on the left, I'm afraid to say, betraying their ignorance, that there is a need for NATO because many of the Eastern European nations uh, feel threatened uh, by Moscow. Well, this is ignorant because if you go down the list, and I don't have time to go down the entire list, but if you look at Finland, oftentimes rated as the happiest nation on planet Earth, I'm not sure how that's measured, that they won their independence as a result of the Bolshevik Revolution, for example. If you look look at Yugoslavia, or the former Yugoslavia, before it was bombed into smithereens by U.S. imperialism uh, about 19 years ago uh, or or so, or 20 years ago or so, what's interesting is that their longtime, long-term leader and founder, Joseph Bras Tito, broke with Moscow in the late 1940s, of course, uh, helped to found the non-aligned movement in the mid-1950s. And, of course, uh, that did not save this uh, nation from being disrupted and broken up by U.S. imperialism. And when the former uh, republics of Yugoslavia, like North Macedonia and Montenegro, uh, joined NATO, which they have done, they're joining it most of all because they fear the once leading nation in Yugoslavia, which is Serbia, more than Moscow. If you look at Bulgaria, for example, which will now be hosting uh, NATO troops in the thousands, well, the, any Bulgarian can tell you that it owes its independence and sovereignty to Russia in the 1870s because many of these folks that grab the microphone and discuss don't recognize that a primary contradiction in Southeast Europe going back centuries was Russia protecting, say, the Bulgarians against the Ottoman Turks, uh, for example. Mm-hmm. If you look, look at uh, Romania, for example, uh, they broke with Moscow in the 1960s, recall Nixon's trip uh, to Bucharest at that time. If you look at Albania, which helped to move this resolution in the United Nations uh, concerning castigating Moscow for Ukraine, well, 
they turned Maoist and anti-Soviet in the 1960s. And so obviously they were able to survive and they broke up because of their own contradictions. And so once again, we, we need more intelligence on the part of those who have access to the microphone. Dr. Gerald Horn, as always, thank you so much for that analysis and that insight. And we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. And there's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There is an interesting piece in MR Online entitled, War with North Korea Cannot Be Contained But Must Be Prevented, an interview with K.J. No. It opens with Ann Garrison asking Mr. No, North Korea is standing up to the U.S.'s 4,800 locked and loaded nuclear weapons with an estimated 30 to 60 of its own. Do you think it would still be standing without them? Well, for the answer to this question, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist, writer, teacher, and subject of this interview. K.J. No, as always, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So your answer to the question, without his nuclear weapons, would North Korea be standing without them? No, uh, it's not possible. North Korea has been continuously and um, constantly threatened with nuclear annihilation uh, since the 1950s. And so for the, new, for the North Koreans, uh, having a nuclear deterrent is simply a matter of good policy. And this is why they're doing their recent missile tests. They want to complete their nuclear deterrence capacity. And uh, they're moving simply on their own schedule. Of course, they time their specific tests to uh, you know, certain political events or, you know, political happenings. But at the end of the day, they are simply moving ahead with their uh, capacity for deterrence because they believe that the Biden administration is not a good faith interlocutor. And they're certainly very, very worried about the incoming Yun Sagyar, uh presidency, which has threatened to preemptively strike North Korea. This just reminds me of that now infamous quote by John Bolton to North Korea, you don't want to go the way of Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, And we know that when Gaddafi gave up his, relinquished his nuclear capabilities, we know what happened there. You know, um, KJ, the other thing in looking at that is the, the portrayal, the old game in the U.S. The leader of country X is a madman. Assad, Putin, whoever, they're always a madman. And in this case, they're parano- it's a paranoid hermit nation. But the bottom line is this. I've heard this said oftentimes, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't still out to get you. The U.S. practices every year multiple times. They fly along North Korea's border and practice an invasion. They practice nuclear strikes. They don't do that to us. So the idea, and, and we've bombed them, killed 30% of the population, bombed them till we 
couldn't find any more civilian targets to bomb and kept bombing them. The idea that they are paranoid without justification and that their leaders are just crazy, mad, insane people is to me just more of the game that's played to really fool the American people into supporting policies that aren't unjust. Yes, absolutely. It's character assassination and demonization that is trying to get people to it's obscuring the political facts on the ground. The fact is that North Korea is an extremely rational actor. There's nothing mad or uh, insane about anything they're doing. And regarding the paranoia, I would say it's not simply that if you're paranoid doesn't mean that you don't have enemies out there. It's in the case of North Korea, no matter how paranoid they get, it never seems to be enough. The simple fact is that the United States, until very recently, every year, twice a year, it would rehearse the decapitation, invasion, and uh, takedown of North Korea. It would have, in the spring and fall, uh, large military exercises. Some of these exercises would engage 300,000 troops and two air- aircraft carrier battle groups. I mean, that's the, the level of you know, destruction. I mean, when Russia amassed 150,000 troops, you know, the world was in an uproar. The U.S. amasses twice that number of troops on North Korea's border. It timed these military exercises to coincide with North Korea's planting season so that they have to divert people from doing harvesting into, you know, guarding their borders. And then they challenge North Korea and say that it's starving its people while creating exactly those conditions, uh, you know, that would create insecurity. So the hypocrisy uh, and the demonization is over the top. And it really gives, you know, the, the public a complete misunderstanding uh, and incapacity to judge and to, uh, you know, put pressure on the, on the real issues. Following to Garland's point, that made me think about Truman using the nuclear bomb to to end World War II when many have said that that really wasn't necessary, that that was just uh, his wanting to see the technology employed instead of needing it for defense. But there's a piece of this uh, framework of distrust. You say there was once a possibility of denuclearizing North Korea back in the 90s. They had agreed to monitoring and dismantling of their nuclear reactor in exchange for normalization, but that didn't quite work out. KJ, no. Yes, exactly. So this was the agreed framework, and it seemed like there was good process, uh, you know, progress. North Korea, you know, is, is a poor country, and it was building a nuclear reactor, uh, according to them, because they need to generate electricity. And, you know, this is, you know, this is what some countries do. It does not have oil resources. And because the U.S. was concerned about this, uh, they offered to replace the nuclear reactor with a different kind of reactor uh, that would, um, you know, that, that could not be converted into uh, nuclear fuel, uh, weapon fuel, and also to deliver, you know, heating oil to North Korea. Well, immediately after that was signed, that, that agreement was dead in the water, and the U.S. never delivered on those promises. I, I don't think it even broke ground on the nuclear reactor until, you know, almost uh, eight years later. And so it was a complete bad faith negotiation, a a complete 
cynical betrayal uh, of the North Koreans who actually had taken considerable efforts and had actually dismantled large parts of their nuclear program. And so this is the kind of framework of uh, not simply distrust, but the framework of uh, betrayal that has dogged all North Korea uh, and uh, U.S. relationships, including the 1953 armistice, which was supposed to lead to a negotiated truce, which the U.S. Uh, disavowed the day after signing the uh, armistice. So this is the problem. Uh, you know, you have to have good faith interlocutors, good faith negotiation, and the U.S. has shown over and over and over again in its negotiation that any time it signs an agreement with North Korea, literally the very next day, it sabotages it. There's an interesting article, Why India Won't Readily Leave Russia for the U.S. Washington vows to replace Russia as India's top arms, energy, and diplomatic partner, but a fast pivot isn't viable. And what this is missing out, in my opinion, is India seems to have made a decision, and it doesn't seem to be leading towards the U.S. empire. Your thoughts on India and how it fits in in the global reorder of things? Well, absolutely. The idea was to use the Quad, India, Australia, Japan, and the U.S., as a sort of Asian NATO against China. Well, the problem with that is India is very, very close to Russia. And when the U.S. wants to take down China, it actually wants to take down Russia and China. This is the two of the two plus default formulation of the national security strategy. And so because of that, India, because of its relations since 1955 with Russia, these are close military, political, economic relations, including massive amounts of import of military hardware, of grains, of fuel, etc. This leaves India in a very, very bad place. They will not condemn Russia. They will not split from Russia because of all this history and a relationship. And because of that, this disables the Quad, this hobbles the Quad. And the U.S. is angry about this, but it doesn't know what to do. I think what will happen is that China uh, and India will eventually start to, uh, you know, improve their relations because of the good offices of Russia. And so it will be exactly the opposite of what the U.S. had intended, which is first to split Russia from China and then to split India and use it as a battering ram against uh, China. None of those things seem to be happening because the cards uh, and the pieces are being played all uh, incorrectly and in the wrong sequence. So President Biden has characterized India's response to the U.S. demand that everybody side with it against Russia as shaky. Understanding what you've just articulated, how much of this is the United States over expecting and playing its hand, thinking I can tell India what to do and India will do it versus India now, I think that would be Modi thinking, well, what's really in the best interest for India long-term? Exactly. Uh, India sees what its long-term interests are, and it's, you know, it's part of the Asian continent. You know, it has neighbors, it's neighbors with China, and it has strong relations with Russia. And it is, uh, you know, regardless of how the United States thinks of it, it is a sovereign state. And so, yes, I think the U.S. had... Uh, you know, uh, wrong assumptions and expectations regarding India. It assumed that it could simply tell India what to do, which the Indian, neither the Indian public nor the political class are very happy about. And this speaks to the weakness and the shakiness of the quote-unquote coalition the U.S. is 
building against China and Russia. It refers to them as a kind of lattice work, which speaks to the weakness rather than the traditional hub-and-spoke top-down architectures that it likes to impose. But just on the sanctions itself, out of 192 countries uh, you know, on, that are members of the UN, uh, only a small fraction, perhaps 40, 50 countries, actually agreed to sanction Russia. And India is certainly not one of them. And there's very little, I think, that the U.S. can do at this point without making things even worse and driving India even closer into relations with Russia and China. And I would close by saying this. India aspires to be a great world power. And here's what they know. If we ever get there, we're next. Simple as that. Exactly. KJ, no, as always, thank you so much for your time. We greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Folks, you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. MSN reports Brazil's ex-president Lula holds lead over Bolsonaro. Brazil's former president, Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, holds a comfortable lead over the far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, according to polls, as the political rivals are expected to face off in an October vote. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the Latin American coordinator for Code Pink, Leo Flores. As always, Leo, welcome back. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back on. Thank you. What would you say are the two or three major issues that have brought about or have resulted in this turnabout in the politics in in Brazil? Also understanding that as we sit here at the end of March, uh, we've got quite a few months before we get to October and a day in politics is light years in, in, in life. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing in the polls, in this latest poll that was uh, cited by MSNBC or MSN, rather, is what we're, we've been seeing actually for like the last year, meaning that if Lula runs for president, he's going to be the, by far the most popular candidate, the leading candidate. And yeah, there's still a lot of time before between now and the election. Uh, I don't I think if the elections are fair, I think Lula will very much likely be the winner. But anything can happen between now and then, as we know, you know, four years ago. We were talking about uh, Lula possibly running in, in those elections in 2018 when he was, uh, you know, jailed on trumped-up corruption charges, right? And then in that instance, he was banned from running, and then eventually, after you know years-long uh, uh, court dates, court appearances, those charges were dropped. He was eventually cleared, and now the the path is set for, for him to run again. We'll see what happens because, you know, uh, in Brazil, you have a military that plays a, a kind of an outsized role in politics. And the Brazilian military was involved behind the scenes, both in the coup against Dilma Rousseff in 2016 and in the, the attempts to to prevent Lula from running in 2018. But what we're, what we're seeing now is with Bolsonaro, he's wildly unpopular, in large part for 
the response to the, to the coronavirus pandemic, right? It's been such a horrible response by Brazil. Uh, really, we would be hearing more about it if the response here in this country wasn't so bad. But Brazilians are, are fed up with that. Uh, Bolsonaro also, you know, he eliminated many of the social programs that were wildly successful under Lula and under Dilma, basically under the Workers' Party, which had been in power in Brazil from 2003 to 2016. That has obviously caused a backlash among the Brazilian people. In fact, he has at times kind of tried to reinstitute some of these programs and done some more populist things in order to get support back, but it doesn't seem like that's working. So, so for Bolsonaro, you know, the, it's the pandemic, his response to the problems faced by Brazil, Brazil's poor, and just, uh, you know, he gets in all these scandals. He, he oh, oh, you know, he says the wrong things many times. Uh, a, a guy that's very controversial, a guy whose disapproval rating is incredibly high. And so I, I think there's a serious chance that the left is going to win in Brazil. You know, Leo, this would be Brazil. A lot of people don't know this is the fifth largest and the fifth most populous country in the world. It is in size. I mean, this is the heart of the center and most of the other organs. If we use that in the body of a metaphor because of the size and population of South America, this would be truly a turning point for left leaning parties, left leaning people in South America and for the influence of the U.S. empire as as do you, I suspect that their, you know, oily hands will be all over this trying to stop it. But it seems like a turning point, from my perspective, in the movement towards independence, shall we say, in, in South America, Central it's America, also, Latin America. It's also where you'll find the largest group of black people uh, outside of the continent of Africa. Wow. I think there are more. Is that is that right, uh, Leo? That is, that's my understanding as well. Yeah. There are more black people are in Brazil if there are, than there are in this country. They're, yeah, they're, than, they than larger parts. Other, other, than, other than the continent of Africa. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and that's another thing we've seen in Brazil over the last four years of, of, of this Bolsonaro government is this incredible racism very much modeled after Trump uh, against black people, against indigenous people, and working class people in Brazil. Uh, but, but yeah, you're, you're right. If, if Lula wins, that's going to be a huge boon for the left. It's going to mean that South America is going to be back on track towards pushing for, you know, well, final independence, liberation from U.S. hegemony. Uh, let's remember that when Lula was first elected, that was part of what's known as, you know, the pink tide, where we had left leader after left leader elected all throughout Latin America. And it was through Lula in Brazil, Chavez in Venezuela, uh, Kirchner in Argentina, that South America was able to divide new multilateral organizations such as UNASUR, which is the Union of South American uh, Nations, uh, as well as the SELAC, the Community of, uh, of Latin American and Caribbean States, and MERCOSUR, which is a kind of a trade deal with strength and very much under Lula. So, and these have all been weakened, if not totally destroyed, uh, basically since, you know, Bolsonaro uh, took office in, in Brazil and also Duque in Colombia, when, when there was a kind of a right-wing pushback following the death of President Chavez in 2013 and, and the various coups we've seen. So, so if Lula is gonna, would, were to win, I think, first of all, that would mean a lot of pressure comes off the shoulders of Venezuela because now you're going to have a friendly government in Brazil that is going to reject any attempt to foment regime change in Venezuela, and that's going to strengthen the region as a whole, and we're going to see a, a new push towards regional integration uh, because it, it's, it's bizarre, right? When we, had, when we were talking about Brazil maybe five, six years ago, we talked about Brazil in the context of BRICS, BRICS being Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, this new group of nations that was going to set uh, you know, the tone for a multipolar world. 
And then you have Bolsonaro winning. Bolsonaro's very right-wing guy, very much linked to the military. He was former member of the military. But what he's done is subordinate Brazil entirely to the desires of the United States. Uh, those desires of the United States match up very well with the desires of the Brazilian oligarchy. And so that's what we've been seeing. And that's why Brazil has been not as much of a player in the world over the last four years as it, as it had been previously. In fact, let me ask you to elaborate on that, because that just takes me to my next question. You mentioned Trump. And when Bolsonaro was running, he was advised by Steve Bannon, who was a Trump advisor. A lot of the rhetoric that you heard coming from Bolsonaro was incredibly Trumpian, if not Steve Bannian. Um in, in, in the rhetoric, you talked about the elimination of social programs. Well, that tied very closely to the neoliberal policies that were uh, implemented in the United States and by the United States, particularly as it relates to Central and South America, starting with the Chicago boys in Chile. So with all of that, a lot of people thought that the election of Bolsonaro following the election of Trump was going to be Trumpism on the march. And we're now wondering if, in fact, that is still a, a reality. Your thoughts, Leo Flores. First of all, is that analysis accurate? And then your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely something to that because it, and it wasn't just Trump, right? It, what we've seen over the last kind of decade in, in Latin America and really the entire hemisphere is right wing forces coming together and kind of strategizing and planning and coordinating together. We saw it with Trump in Brazil. We've seen it with, uh, you know, Venezuelan fascists being electoral uh, kind of consultants in, in El Salvador throughout uh, Central America and Mexico, Colombia as well. So we see all these kind of ties by the right wing, by neoliberals, by neocons working together to kind of undo all of the gains made by the left during this time. Uh, and now they're facing a major setback. Uh, obviously, it, it helps quite a bit that Trump is in an office here. But even even if Trump had won in the prior elections here, I think we'd still see the uh, huge challenges for the right in, in Latin America, because I think the, the people are really sick of kind of being used in the way that, that the, these right wing governments have been using them, at, you know, funneling all of the wealth from, you know, the poor to the to the very rich, to, to the one percent of, of whether we're talking about Brazil or Colombia or wherever. And, and so now we're seeing a blowback against that. We see this from time to time, this sort of kind of cyclical left-right shift in Latin America. And I think we're moving to in, in, into one of those periods again. I tell you something, uh, that two things we want to talk about, certainly the left rising in Colombia. But I really believe that it's a critical story in South America is the trial of Janine Añez in Bolivia, simply because, you know, in the past, these things would happen. There'd be the overthrow. And if the country did finally get hip to the, you know, the right wing uh, puppet, they would be whisked out of the country that there was a, a this coup. And the person who was at the center of it is actually being held accountable. I think that's um a very important development. Your thoughts on Janine Añez and, of course, Colombia? Yeah, no, it's incredibly important that Janine Añez is, is, is facing trial. What we've seen, I mean, what you mentioned about the U.S. kind of whisking its uh, nefarious actors away, that was the kind of pattern that we've seen in the past. And in fact, one of the more nefarious actors in the Bolivian coup of 2019, his name is Arturo Murillo, he actually did manage to flee from, from Bolivia. I believe he's, he's living in Florida now, Florida now, if not in Europe. Uh, but the fact that Jenny Nanez is facing trial is, is huge because it shows that there is going to be accountability 
for these people who act against democracy. And I think, and actually, you know, the fact that she's facing trial in Bolivia is making many people in Venezuela question why Juan Guaido isn't facing trial yet. Uh, and so, so, so that'll be an interesting dynamic to, to watch as well. And going to this issue of Colombia, you know, in Colombia, we had uh, elections not that long ago, about a week and a half ago, in which Gustavo Petro, the left-wing candidate, and his historic pact, as it's called, uh, performed exceedingly well, right? And so now in Colombia, we have a very real possibility of a left-wing president. In fact, four years ago, he ran uh, at, for the president, Gustavo Petro, that is. He got a historic number of vote, votes, and he still lost, unfortunately. The, the, the situation on the ground has changed significantly in the past four years. First of all, you have the Duque government. Uh, you know, this is a government during his tenure. There have been over a thousand activists killed, 300 former FARC members killed. Uh, and among those activists are 65 environmental activists in 2020 alone, making Colombia, I think it's the most dangerous country to be an environmental activist right now. And what's really interesting is that, uh, is that, uh, Gustavo Petro's running mate is going to be this Afro-Colombian woman named Francia Marquez who won the Goldman Prize. Uh, it's a, basically like the Nobel Prize equivalent for environmental activists. She won it in 2018. She's going to be the number two if they win. Uh, and so there's a lot of hope in Colombia right now. Gustavo Petro, he's that's certainly on the left. I would put him kind of on par politically, ideologically with maybe like a Bernie Sanders. So he's not as, he's not going to be as far left as there as we have in Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, but he's by far the best alternative for Colombia which is a country that has, you know, been incredibly unstable over the past several years. We've had massive, massive protests in 2021, uh, April and May, that paralyzed the country where we saw firsthand the brutality of the Colombian military and police in how they repressed those protesters. So I think people remember that. And I think we're going to see the right wing uh, lose in Colombia again, if everything plays out fairly, because they're going to do everything they, they, they can to ensure that Gustavo Petro doesn't win. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, Colombia was just named a major non-NATO ally by the United States. And this is a status that brings with it, you know, defense and trade and security cooperation. It's going to be a huge boon for the military industrial complex here in the U.S. and for the defense industry in Colombia, because they're going to get all this influx of money and weapons. And we're going to see increased militarization of the police in Colombia. Uh, and that's going to be a major challenge for, uh, for a guy like Gustavo Petro. As we get out, uh, you mentioned Guaido. It made me think about Kissinger's uh, statement, it may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but fatal to be America's friend. And Guaido, as the United States has been going hat in hand to Venezuela begging for oil, I wonder if he may find his name as part of a negotiation at the end of the day. <laughs> Leo Flores, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. We look forward to having you back. Anytime. Thank you. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. 
Here's what's in Biden's $5.8 trillion budget proposal. His requests reflect an administration that's grappling with multiple obstacles. It can't yet move past the pandemic, didn't get to enact its huge social spending package, and has added Russia's intervention in Ukraine to its national security palette. Personally, I believe it's that last point, Russia's intervention in Ukraine to its being able to add it to its national security palette that really matters to the administration. For insight, let's turn to our next guest. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. He's a former president of the National Economic Association. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, welcome back. Thank you. So Politico reports the multi-trillion dollar proposal that was released yesterday seeks to build on the achievements of Biden's first year, including the passage of the new infrastructure law, while chipping away at long-term priorities such as climate change and competition with China. Uh, The reality? Congress will, as always, enact its own spending priorities. And not only will that likely look pretty different from Biden's request, but lawmakers also won't necessarily get it done before the next fiscal year. To me, a lot of people look at the State of the Union as the key event early in a, in a president's a year, but I think it's the submission of the budget, which comes after the State of the Union. And I also think that Politico is giving Biden a little more credit than he deserves. Your thought, Dr. Tahid? Yeah, I think the, uh, the, the, in, the, in the title of that article, the term modest increase <laughs> is, is, is to set the stage for, for political support for the, uh, the uh, not modest uh, military budget increase. I mean, a, a $5.8 trillion budget, uh, overall budget, is, uh, in fact, I think, a, a good thing. Uh, it should be more, but it's the distribution of the budget that's important. And when you have uh, almost a trillion dollars going into national defense, including the Pentagon, and you're not able to uh, supply uh, programming for for um, um, housing, for health care, for uh, student debt cancellation and so forth, the, all the stuff that was in the Build Back Better plan except for student debt, uh, then, then you're going in the wrong direction. You're exploding the budget uh, for, for military contractors, and uh, the, the budget is therefore deficient for, for social programs. And so uh, when, when, when political says modest, I think they're trying to set the stage. Uh, they're, they're saying it's modest for, for rabid uh, Republicans who want to double the, the, the military budget. Yeah, that, says, that, set, you know, that puts it in, in a context, but it's, it's not the context that the American people are really concerned about. I noticed something. Another shot at taxing the uber rich. So what they say is, look— when it comes to the defense budget, yeah, we're going through the roof with that. And we're going to take a stab at taxing the uber rich. Now, understanding that there's no way in bloody hell that it's going to get through. There's no way it's going to pass. But they're just like this. To me, I read this piece and it's pure propaganda. We're going to give it a shot instead of saying, I mean, I'll put it like this. When I say when Garland says I'm going to get it, give it a shot, that really means that I feel there's a less than 50 percent, far less than 50 percent chance. Garland, can you make that? Can you make that shot from half court? I'm going to give it a shot. (laughs) It ain't going in. But anyway, your thoughts on giving it a shot to tax the uber rich. Yeah, this this idea that uh, we'll do the pay for in this in this budget by putting a twenty percent minimum tax on those who earn 
over $100 million is a, is a great idea, but as you said, it, it's dead on arrival. It's not going to pass. But what it does, it, it gives uh, uh, the Biden administration cover so they can put out the, the huge defense budget, uh, get people excited about that, uh, feeling that it's necessary. But when the, when the pay-for doesn't, doesn't pass, then they have to resort to decreasing spending in other places like social programs in order to get the budget through. But they can say, hey, we tried not to decrease these social programs, but uh, we couldn't pass that tax on the uber-rich. That it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a false flag, if you will, if you're talking in military terms. It's a, it's a red herring. And uh, it's not everybody knows that it's not going to pass, but it can, it can give the Biden administration cover in uh, pretending that they tried. Where do you see the so-called progressive caucus here? They have come out and they've stood on the steps and they've given a speech or two. But in terms of significant pushback, uh, where do you see the progressive caucus here? I'm not even going to mention the congressional black caucus on this. Go, go ahead. Yeah, the, the progressive caucus is always rhetorically on the right side. But but in the end, what they what they've done is they they usually cave, and it it's very difficult for anyone, uh, progressive or not, to not uh, go for an increase in the military budget, particularly in a time of proxy war between the U.S. and Russia in the Ukraine, and 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 so yes, the 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 the, the progressives are saying the right things in terms of, you know, the Pentagon budget can't be can't be audited. There's waste, fraud, and abuse in that budget, so forth and so on. But in the end they'll still they'll still pass the budget. They'll try to get the uh the, the tax, the Uber Rich tax passed when it when it fails, then they will be pushed into supporting uh decreases in social programs. Uh, the other thing is, I don't see the huge amount of money that we need to really address the potential for another pandemic. And, 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 and I'll go one further. To even address the obvious uh, uh, holes in our health care system, when this one came, one of the things we found out is we have far too few um, hospital rooms, um, ICU rooms. We need to be paying, literally paying the money to get more people trained. Our our staff was overstressed. A lot of people left the healthcare field because it was too stressful. So we need a, you know, kind of like a New Deal kind of investment in our healthcare system just to bring it up to par, much less should we be hit with another pandemic. And I don't see that kind of investment in here. Your thoughts? Yes, you're right. In fact, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was, was incredibly deficient in creating a supply of healthcare professionals, I mean, it it, it certainly uh, increased the uh, the payments out to health insurance companies for 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 um, um, support. It uh, put uh, uh, over 20 million people who didn't have health insurance uh, gave them health insurance so they can go to the hospital. But but if you're going to the hospital, if you're increasing demand, but you're not increasing the supply of healthcare professionals, then all you can expect is that the price of healthcare is going to go up, and then you get overworked to healthcare professionals who are leaving the profession, particularly uh, with with the COVID crisis that's occurring. And so we can expect uh, greater um, uh, increases in healthcare costs, uh, lowering of treatment of, 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 of treatment going forward. 
as a result of, one, not preparing for an increase in the healthcare professions to provide even the care under Obamacare, and then the, 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 um, the, the, the pandemic is, is another shock to that system. And so, so health care is, is in for a bumpy ride. Health insurance is in for a good ride. They'll, they'll make their profits, but health care is in for a bumpy ride. So this political piece, I think it is, uh, says that uh, what Biden requested, the White House asked Congress for $813 billion for national defense, $773 billion for the Pentagon, $30 billion more than approved by Congress this year. I believe that this year's appropriation was something like $20 billion more than Biden had even asked for. So we've been hearing two things. One, we've been hearing for, I think, about eight years, starting in the, in the um, Obama administration, that we've been conditioned to these uh, interventions and into these wars particularly to simply boost the defense budget. And then also, I find it interesting, they say, the administration is focusing on China as the pacing challenge for the Pentagon. So as many have said, we got to go through Russia in order to get to China. So this budget is only going to continue to go up. And if we look at our history, this seems to be what contributes greatly to the downturn of empires. Well, yeah, these, these budgets, uh, military budgets, are, are driven by uh, increasing the fear in the American public of, of the other, of Russia, of China. And uh, the, current, the current Pentagon budget is $29 billion more than even the Pentagon asked for. Uh, now, now this, uh, this budget, uh, proposed budget, is now $30 billion more in the previous budget, and and when you know you had the pivot to China that uh, that came out of the Obama administration, that is the focus on China as the enemy in the world, and now you have uh, this this focus on Russia and China, and and Russia and China are are combining uh, because they they feel a threat from from the West, and so uh, the military industrial complex, the weapons providers, are always um, uh, going to going to make out if they can make the public fear. Uh, that, that that the other uh, other side is is wanting to to to, to destroy them, and so th- these budgets are going to as long as you can manufacture fear, then you can always um, uh, find money to buy some new weapons, and and that's what this process is based on. And you're right, this is a this is an ongoing situation. It is very difficult to, to break into that psychology. Let me ask you a political question. The other thing we're seeing here is Joe Biden made some comments about he was going to decriminalize marijuana and people who were in jail. They'd make you know ways for people to be, get pardoned and out of jail. This wouldn't even cost money, and he's not doing it. It's nowhere in there. My thoughts are they've gotten to a point where— they don't even care if they lose in November anymore. It seems to me, in my personal opinion, there's one party and the oligarchs could get are like, well, so what? The Republicans win. The Democrats win. We get what we want no matter what. I've never seen a circumstance where I see a party that just clearly says we could care less if we lose in November. That's the way they're starting to come across to me. Well, before you respond to that, let me add one thing, Garland. And we talked about this two years ago. I think it was the CEO of Boeing's defense was asked during the last election, who did Boeing prefer, Biden or Trump? And his answer was 
doesn't matter to us. We're going to get paid anyway. Dr. Tawheed. Yeah, the, the, the candor that, we, that comes from these um, uh, leaders of these big corporations is, I guess, refreshing. Uh, they're not even trying to hide the fact that it doesn't matter to them um, uh, which party, uh, which politician gets elected because they provide donations to both parties and uh, they can they can contribute to both campaigns and they can essentially buy any politician that comes up. So it doesn't matter to them. And it becomes increasingly obvious that that the, the, the difference between the Republicans and the Democrats is only that the Republicans are willing to say they're Republicans. Uh, that they are conservatives, that they are all for business, and the Democrats have to pretend that they're being forced into uh, providing a, a, a profit to, to business. But, but, but in, in essence, uh, the, the business people don't care because they do get what they want uh, eventually. Well, all this xenophobia, all of this creation of the fear of the other is merely uh, fattening frogs for snakes, and, and we're the frogs. Or maybe it's fattening budgets for fools, and we're the, we're the dupes and the fools. Dr. Linwood Tahid, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate it, and we look forward to having you back. Yes, thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a piece in Greenwich Times, Meet the Nuke the U.S. Keeps in Europe, Just Waiting to Not Be Used. Near steep vineyards of Riesling grapes in an underground vault at an Air Force base in western Germany sits an American nuclear bomb. More than one of them, actually. Each bomb is about the length of two refrigerators laid down end-to-end and as heavy as the average adult male musk ox. The bombs are slender and pointy and a little more than a foot wide. How threatening and ominous are these weapons and how do they impact our reality? For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and author of Scorpion King, America's Suicidal Embrace of Nuclear Weapons from FDR to Trump. He served in the Soviet Union as an inspector implementing the INF Treaty, served in General Schwarzkopf's staff during the Gulf War. And from 91 to 98, he was a chief weapons inspector with the U.N. in Iraq, Scott Ritter, as always, Scott, welcome back. Well, thanks for having me. So, and there's another piece in Asia Times entitled Hypersonic Standoff in the Taiwan Strait. The newly developed hypersonic weapons spell the end of the carrier strike group power projection era. And these two pieces prompted Garland and I to wonder, what do these missile technologies do to the projection of power, particularly the U.S. projection of power going forward? Well, the, the, they're, they're two distinct weapon systems. I believe the first one that you're talking about is the B-61 bomb, mm-hmm. uh, which is a tactical nuclear weapon uh, that um, the United States uh, maintains as part of the of the NATO nuclear umbrella. That is, these are bombs that, uh, if there ever was to be a war, would not be dropped by U.S. 
aircraft, although they're capable of being employed by U.S. aircraft, but rather by NATO air forces that maintain dual-capable aircraft. That is an aircraft that can drop a conventional bomb, but also has the specialized equipment and the pilots are specially trained to deliver uh, the B-61 nuclear munition. Um, what, what, what's important about these is the, the concept of the dual-use aircraft. To give you an example, right now the weapons are in a bunker um, in Germany, but they're also in the Netherlands, they're in Italy, and maybe some other places uh, as well. Um, I, I think somebody published a list of them. They're supposed to be secret, but they're not. Um, the, the bomb itself you know, is, is a tactical nuclear weapon, but when you put that bomb on a NATO aircraft... Um, you now have created, you know, the potential for a nuclear strike, which means that every NATO aircraft that's capable of carrying that bomb has to be perceived by Russia as a potential nuclear threat. And the reason why I bring this up is, as we speak, over the Baltics and Poland, through uh, four nations that are <laughs> very close to Russia, especially the Baltics, we have a 24-hour combat air patrol uh, being conducted by NATO aircraft um, some of which are dual-use capable, meaning they can employ uh, nuclear weapons. And so that means that every time a Na- dual-use NATO aircraft takes off and assumes a posture over the Baltics or Poland, Russia needs to treat that aircraft as one that can potentially um, veer off course and head towards St. Petersburg or Moscow with a nuclear weapon on board. Uh, which means Russia is constantly in a heightened state of uh, alert. Um, and this, this creates the potential for a misunderstanding, for a mistake, especially uh, when we have a war in Ukraine going on uh, where, you know, people are talking about the potential between uh, for, for NATO and, um, and Russia to engage in some sort of conflict, especially we're at a time when an American president has just promulgated a um, nuclear posture review where we have foregone uh, saying that uh, we won't do nuclear first strikes, which means we've embraced the notion of, uh, of the potential for a nuclear first strike by the United States at a time when the American president articulated what is uh, in reality unspoken policy, that is regime change in Moscow. So, Can I interrupt and ask a quick question? Sure. Are, are any of the aircraft requested by Ukraine or offered by Poland dual-use aircraft? No, none okay. of the, 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 okay. the aircraft being requested by Ukraine are not considered dual-use okay. by, by NATO standards. Thank you. Um, now, if we ever sold, for instance, F-35A aircraft to Ukraine, that would be a dual-use aircraft. Um you know, and, and we are those are those are aircraft that, for instance, we are providing to Finland, a non-NATO member. But we are now, from a Russian perspective, we just gave Finland um, 35 uh, nuclear-capable aircraft um, that, if NATO ever decided to extend the nuclear umbrella to Finland, now represent a nuclear threat to Russia. So that's why that's what makes these B-61 so inherently. Uh, destabilizing and dangerous. In the Pacific, you know, we we have grown accustomed since the end of the Second World War of visualizing American power projection in the form of the carrier battle group. 
um, you know, a, a U.S. aircraft carrier with nuclear-capable aircraft on board, surrounded by a host of destroyers and cruisers and submarines that will protect it from any threat under the water, on the water, or in the air, um, sailing with near impunity off the shores of any nation we desire, and projecting power in the form of the carrier aircraft wing that can fly off the carrier, strike targets, and return to the carrier. Um, those days are over. Uh, China has built a class of missiles that can reach out and touch the American carriers before they get close enough to the Chinese shore to make their um, embark air wing viable. Um, and it, that's, that's just a reality. The carrier battle group, the day of the carrier battle group's uh, preeminence is, is finished. Um, how does the United States respond now uh, to China's expansion in the Pacific um, with military capability? since the carrier now has been neutered? And the answer is intermediate-range hypersonic missiles. We're developing a class of missiles called the, the Dark Eagle. Um, they're actually the first Dark Eagle units expected to be deployed in Europe, a very dangerous um, uh, you know, uh, event um, uh, this year. Uh, and we're talking about Dark Eagle becoming operational in the Pacific this year as well. The Dark Eagle, of course, can be put on um, an expeditionary aircraft such as the C-17 flown to an expeditionary airfield that's an unimproved airfield anywhere in the Pacific, offloaded and be, being made ready to fire within hours, uh, capable of launching, you know, a hypersonic um, uh, missile, uh, you know, thousands of miles um, to, to threaten not only China's military buildup in the South China Sea, but also, depending on where you position the missile, to threaten uh, Chinese forces inland. Um, you know, this is this is the new uh, the new age of power projection. These these hypersonic missiles. Um, and, and again, I mean, I understand why we're doing it because the aircraft carrier uh, no longer represents um, a viable uh, form of power projection. But it's it's a deeply destabilizing uh, weapon because. China will have no choice but to come up with a counter to it. And now we've entered into an escalatory arms race, uh, the end of which no one will be able to predict. You know, Scott, it sounds to me, because, you know, in seeing that Russia's used um, hypersonic missiles, it sounds to me, of course, the day's coming when they'll be all over the place. And it's just about now. At this point, any ship of any consequence that a major power wants to eliminate in day one. I mean, you start a war against a major power, you've got all of these ships. If you got 300 ships and they got 300 missiles, you got zero ships. That the day of any naval battles or naval projection of power in any manner are behind us with these hypersonic missiles. And not to mention this, even if you, which seems quite a ways off, develop some kind of anti, you know, some kind of anti-aircraft or anti-missile technology to stop some of them. If they fire a volley of them, still, you're not going to be able to stop any number of them. So anyway, you see where I'm going. Your thoughts on that? No, I mean, basically war as we've known it. This is why the Marine Corps, um, you know, and hats off to General Berger, uh, said, look, I'm not married to any legacy system, meaning, you know, the way the Marine Corps has been preparing to fight for since World War II is to put a whole bunch of Marines on uh, on some very big ships, sell those ships off the shore of a target nation, and then have those Marines disembark into smaller ships and carry out an amphibious uh, landing. Um, 
today those very big ships with uh, lots of Marines on board would get sunk uh, before they got anywhere near uh, you know the disembark point. Um, and Berger looked at that and he said, we, we, we can't do that anymore. We have to revise the way we do business. If you're going to spend um, you know two million dollars on a hypersonic missile, uh, maybe my response is to build a small amphibious vessel that carries 75 Marines and have a whole bunch of them um, so that, you know, we have more amphibious ships carrying Marines than you have missiles, and we will get some people on shore backed up by our own long-range fires. I mean, war, the, 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 the way we fight war is changing. Um, it, that's, just a, that's just a reality. Aircraft carriers and large naval formations are a thing of the past. Um, you know, the, the, the littoral warfare is, 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 is probably the wave of the future when it comes to amphibious war. And, um, you know, it, it's hard to tell because of, you know, the, the nature of the conflict in Ukraine. Um, you know, the way the Russians have um, soft-pedaled their approach to reduce civilian casualties and damage to civilian infrastructure. But if Russia was coming in with the full capacity, um, we would have to say that... Uh, the, 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 the modern way of waging war is over. Uh, you know, when you have massed forces, um, you take massed casualties when um, highly lethal uh, weapons of, um, you know, of war are, are applied against you. And, uh, you know, I just think that the, the world is waking up to the reality that technology is making the battlefield prohibitively lethal, prohibitively lethal. And what, and what I mean by that is, you can spend hundreds of billions of dollars building up a military capability that will be eliminated within a week. Um, and at some point in time, society has to realize that the cost-benefit analysis that's attached to that um, doesn't exist. And maybe we need to find out a better way to coexist as humans than, uh, than going to war with one another. Because it's, it's coming to the point where the war is going to be over in a matter of days, if not weeks, because everything that we've built up will be dead or destroyed or dying. We have just about a minute and 15 left. You mentioned General Berger and his not being tied to any legacy systems. But as you listen to the rhetoric from Tony Blinken and Victoria Nuland and, and, and these others, as Biden is talking about uh, President Putin shouldn't be there anymore, is this an old mindset? Are they not realizing, are they trying to fight old issues with old technology and, and old mindset? Well, I mean, there's, there, they are old issues and um, <clears throat> they are old mindsets. But if you listen to what Biden has been saying and what Blinken has been saying and others, you know, when we talk about regime change in Moscow, we're not talking about through military action. We're talking about through empowerment of, um, you know, the, the, the Russian people mm-hmm. uh, to rise up and overthrow Putin. So, you know, we're engaging and a new kind of uh, information warfare, uh, one that Russia has predicted and taken the appropriate measures from their perspective to respond to by decoupling uh, Russia from you know, culturally with the West because the West was using cultural infiltration as a mechanism of undermining, um, not allowing NGOs, et cetera. But, no, I, I think we're looking at a new, a new kind of war, information war, where military objectives will be accomplished by empowering indigenous uh, populations politically. Scott Ritter, as always, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate that insight and that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Hey, thanks a lot. Folks, you're listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 
We are back, and you're listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. Consortium News has a piece by Joe Lauria. Biden confirms why the U.S. needed this war. In a moment of candor, Joe Biden has revealed why the U.S. needed the Russian invasion and why it needs it to continue. The U.S. got its war in Ukraine. Without it, Washington could not attempt to destroy Russia's economy, orchestrate worldwide condemnation, and lead an insurgency to bleed Russia, all part of an attempt to bring down its government. Joe Biden has now left no doubt that it's true. For insight into this, we turn to our next guest. He's an international geopolitical consultant, global speaker, author, veteran, and former international security analyst in Washington, D.C. He's the founder of Global Perspective Consulting, headquartered in Dallas, Texas, Dr. David Walalu. As always, David, welcome back. Glad to be with you guys. Allow me this statement, and then I'd like to get your take. So the president of the U.S., this is from Joloria has confirmed what Consortium News and others have been reporting since the beginnings of Russiagate in 2016, that the ultimate U.S. aim is to overthrow the government of Vladimir Putin. Quote, for God's sake, this man cannot remain in power, end quote, Biden said on Saturday at the Royal Castle in Warsaw. The White House and the State Department have been scrambling to explain away Biden's remark. Here's the problem that I see here, Dr. Walalu. People have a tendency to view events as though they occur in a vacuum. Biden just articulated a U.S. policy vision that has controlled U.S. policy since the 1990s or before. Brzezinski's grand chessboard presents this unilateral, myopic, geostrategic vision for American preeminence in the 21st century. Central to his analysis is the exercise of power on the Eurasian landmass, which is home to the greatest part of the globe's population, natural resources, and economic activity. And Brzezinski focused policy on U.S. primacy in the world and what the what he perceived its greatest threats are. And Brzezinski believed that Russia should be split up into a loose confederation of three semi-independent states. And it's that idea that has controlled U.S. policy, again, since the 90s, from Brzezinski to Albright and now to Tony Blinken. So to me, if people don't understand these current activities in that context, then they are missing an incredibly important element in the analysis. Your thoughts, sir? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, Wilmer. I mean, you hit the nail on the head as far as this kind of statements or this events or developments don't happen in a vacuum. I mean, without, I won't go back to what you said. I'll just go back to 2008 with the memo that was sent by, at that time, William Burns, when he was the ambassador of the United States in, to, to Russia at that time, and the memo won only to a key uh, entities, there are only two or three of them, the Pentagon, NATO, and of course, the CIA at the time. And what was the content of it, which, by the way, now is declassified, it was like, here is what we need to do to bankrupt Russia. You have to engage with the Russians in sanctions. So, so all what Biden, President Biden, rather, what President Biden just stated, it, to, to me, it's not news. So to your listeners, 
they should really put it within the context, historical context of, really, as you suggested, pre-1991 disintegration of the Soviet Union. And this is what some of us here in the United States, uh, we, we can put the puzzle together to understand that events within geopolitical uh, landscape that the U.S. pushes for, like the case of Ukraine, there is for a specific objective and for specific goal. This doesn't happen just willy-nilly because the White House wanted to do this. And that's where the big problem for all, for all of us is to understand the impact of this kind of decisions that we're going to feel that at home right here. Because if some of us think, oh, Ukraine is some 7,000 miles away, I have nothing to worry about, that person, that individual or that citizen is that wrong. Dr. Walalu, let me add two other things that I think were of great consequence. And that is, number one, in 2018, when uh, under John Bolton's uh, recommendations, the Trump administration killed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Treaty. I think that was also a critical part of this, because one of the things that seemed to have really made the decision for the Russians was when Zelensky said, I want nuclear weapons. If you combine that with abdicating that treaty, that means that the door is now open for the U.S., that the treaty is gone, so the U.S. can now put intermediate range missiles into Ukraine that can strike Moscow really quickly. So a a lot of people say, well, Donald Trump certainly has no part of this. I think getting rid of that treaty was a big part of it, because now when the Russians look at it, they say the treaty's there no more. You put missiles right on our border. We're not going to have this. And and I think that was a big part of um. And then Zelensky says, I want nukes. I think that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. Your thought? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, darling. I mean, the idea of that, we think that uh, uh, we hold our end to the bargain. No, we don't. And this is to me where the idea of, and I'll say it straightforward, that we, our foreign policy is not only ambiguous, but also contradictory. You know, we say one thing and do another. We promise things, but we do not deliver on them. We sign treaties, but do not observe the uh, legality of those treaties. You know, the Iran nuclear there is an agreement, which the, the Trump administration unilaterally withdrew from it. The other one is the INF Treaty, which, by the way, when that happened, (laughs) Russia grew more suspicious of America not wanting to commit to any treaty. Because the INF Treaty seems to usher in nearly 30 years, 30 years of warming relations between the two powers. And yet, in the year of this, when when this uh, INF Treaty was was sort of disintegrated. You know, both countries have, again, declared their mistrust in each other. And the Russians were saying, we told you so. This is why we are very concerned about this. I do believe that the Russians have come out to figure out the weak link of the United States in Europe. And this INF was one of them. On Sunday, U.S. Secretary of State Blinken said, as you know, and as you have heard us say repeatedly, we do not have a strategy for regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter. And Joe Loria says the last words inserted for comic relief. I I say 
and, and this is not new. I mean, this is a, a, a biblical adage. Don't judge a man or I'll say a country by what he say or the policies a country articulates. You judge him or them by the policies they enact. I think it's the, the Gospel of Matthew seven sixteen. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. So Blinken's statements mean absolutely nothing, particularly when you get to the world stage. And I can only imagine, and you have been much closer to this, Dr. Walalu, than I have. I just see a whole lot of eye rolling by uh, diplomats and, and, and international leaders in the G7 and other uh, uh, in, the, in the EU saying, come on, Tony, really? You expect us to buy that? Uh, your thoughts, sir? Well, it is the idea that his statements are nothing but a bravado, no more, no less. I mean, Europeans, you know, as we speak, as we speak right now, <laughs> France is maintaining its fact, it's, it's, uh, 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 what is it, business operations in, in Russia, you know. The Macron still talking to Putin. Europeans are realizing where this is headed. It's been going the wrong direction. So when statements coming out of the State Department, and this is why, by the way, most Americans have no clue that there is right now a rift inside Washington Mm -hmm. between the Pentagon and State Department. Why? Because State Department is issuing the statements that really do not make any sense whatsoever. And this is where I always say personally, as a geopolitical analyst, I always say the United States can no longer pull the tone and expect the world or Russia, for that matter, to dance to that tone. That era is bygone. And, and I believe Russia will intensify its global activism because in the face of an American foreign policy that has become, uh, if I may use the term, dependent on politicians who prefer short-term gains over long-term strategy. Why? Because we don't have any foreign policy strategy. We don't have any vision for where we want to go or how we can maintain or manage our presence along with other global powers. Dr. Walalu, the other thing, uh, recently a one of the uh, leaders in Europe said, well, we have exhausted our sanctions. This is all we can do. That's another thing. I'll just say this to Russia's advantage. If I'm in a firefight with the enemy and they unload their am- ammunition, they got no ammunition left. And everything that the U.S. could do and that the EU could do economically has been spent. And I think that creates a certain level of, of weakness and advantage for Russia, China, the, the Eurasian bloc. Your thoughts? Well, the idea of Europeans, look what happened with the natural gas now uh, deal between the United States and EU. The U.S. now was able to achieve that objective because Europeans, and I'll say it, I've always said this and I don't shy away, it's the child that never grows up. Europeans couldn't stand on their feet. It's because they don't have any bone, backbones to a sort of a foreign policy when it comes down to make sure they can stand on their feet. They couldn't. They just couldn't. So I don't foresee any change within Europe. However, there are conversations because the next generation is coming up. Some of the Europeans are saying, well, well when can we stop this? Because we're going to have, we don't want living with this. Not the, uh, the United States. The United States is far away. If there is any uh, uh, conflict here, militarized one, we're going to be the one burned first, not the Americans. So uh, 
Europeans are coming to that realization, and this is where you see in now Turkey, for example. You see in that China, for example. They all are moving in a different direction financially on a global level, on energy levels. You know, Europeans are going to eventually realize, oh, we've made a big mistake. As we close this out, we've got about two minutes left. Is this the point where we will look back 15 years from now, 20 years from now, and say, hey, you know, as we as we look back at Pearl Harbor as one of those defining moments in history, will we look back at this and say, this is where the U.S. overplayed its hand, and this was really the beginning of the end for the unipolar power, for the global hegemon. This is where imperialism took its final, not final turn, but but took its turn. Well, it's just global, the, the geopolitical landscape has shifted now. I mean, it will be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Naive of those who said, no, 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 the U.S. still maintain. No, it is not. Because the reality is that our foreign policy, American foreign policy, has no vision, has no clear objective, and no sense of direction. And personally for me, I worry that this setting, this settings confirm the beginning of the end, not only if you have dominance, but also Western hegemony in its broader context. This is the reality. Dr. David Walalu, as always, sir, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. Anytime, guys. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon. I'm joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. There's a great piece, The Madness of the Resurgent U.S. Cold War with Russia. It opens, the war in Ukraine has placed U.S. and NATO policy towards Russia under a spotlight, highlighting how the United States and its allies have expanded NATO right up to Russia's borders, backed a coup and now a proxy war in Ukraine, imposed waves of economic sanctions and launched a debilitating trillion-dollar arms race. The explicit goal is to pressure, weaken, and ultimately eliminate Russia or a Russia-China partnership as a strategic competitor to U.S. imperial power. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's a peace activist and author of Blood on Our Hands, The American Invasion of Iraq, and he's the author of this piece, Nick Davies. Nick, as always, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. As you talk about this launching a debilitating trillion-dollar arms race, talk about that in the context of Biden's budget that was just released yesterday and the billions of dollars that the United States is looking just to allocate this next fiscal year for the Department of Defense. Yeah. So uh, Biden's asking for, I think it's $813 billion. Is that right? That's a a good Uh, number. Yep. And uh, if if it goes the way his last budget did, then Congress will probably give him even more than he's asking for, Mm -hmm. which is what they did this year. 
or last year, um, or last year for this year. Mm, um, right. And, um, you know, there, there just seems to be no, no restraint on, on any of this, whether, um, <clears throat> you know, whether it's the war on terror, whether it's um, phasing out of the war on terror and into a new Cold War, whether, uh, you know, it's uh, trying to combat Russia that spends already spends only one twelfth of what the U.S. does on its military. Um, you know, there's, there's, just a, there's just a sort of standing blank check from uh, both parties in Congress, um, you know, for, for the military. And all the other things that, that we need in this country are always just, uh, you know, on the back burner. Well, that would be nice, but hey, where's the money going to come from? Well, you know, I think you have a great article. Once again, um, you can find it at CodePink.org, The Madness of the Resurgent for U.S. Cold War with Russia. There is one area that I will ask you about. And you say that while Russia bears full responsibility for this conflict, I have I don't I, I want you to understand what I'm saying. If you if I make a decision to invade a country. Yeah. okay, That was the decision that I made. Right. But. You know, if you come to my porch with a knife and say, you know, I'm going to come in the house and kill you and I'm going to take all your stuff and I'm going to keep your house and I strike out out at you, do I bear full responsibility? And I yell out the door and say, man, I don't want no trouble. Can you leave my porch with the knife? And you say, no, not only that, I'm adding a gun and a bazooka. And you know what? I think I might bring a tank and run it over. The level of threat that we presented to Russia is of such a nature that can we truly say that a country that moved up to their border, threatened them, literally wrote books that said and documents from Rand Corporation, which is a Pentagon sponsored corporation that says we should tear Russia to shreds and let's use Ukraine to do it. Can I truly say they bear full responsibility for this? Yeah, and, and I'm not saying it's a great article, but I, I, I have to question that. Before you respond, Nick, you left one thing out, Garland. What? And that is when that uh, invader came to your porch yeah. with the knife, you said, hey, look, you need to leave my porch because if you don't, you're going to force me to take action. Right. And he didn't leave. He then brought a bazooka and you said, look, man, I'm telling you, if you don't leave my – so you were warned time and time and time again – that you needed to change your behavior, which you didn't do in terms of changing your behavior, you continued to escalate the threat. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Nick, your thoughts on all of that? Well, um, <laughs> I happen to be a pacifist, and um, I also do believe that uh, the U.N. Charter has it right when it says that, you know, uh, countries must settle their disputes peacefully and that therefore um, it is prohibited to um, invade the territory or, you know, politically um, invade another country. Um, and so that's just so, yeah, that's, that's just a sort of basic um, 
point where I draw the line. But I mean, I have, as I explained in the article, and I, you know, and I have been following this all along and and uh, mostly been quite sympathetic to, to Russia up to that point where they, uh, you know, where they invaded Ukraine. Um, uh, I felt like um, I had a lot of respect for President Putin in the way that he had handled things um, in 2014 by simply um, agreeing to take uh, Crimea back into Russia, which it had been part of and which its people, its people had said at the breakup of the Soviet Union they did not want to be part of Ukraine. They had had a referendum then, um, which had um, passed by over 90% to say they did not want to be part of Ukraine. Um, and then, you know, another one in 2014, which reiterated that, I think, with an even higher, higher percentage. But um, so and then, of course, when the anti-coup protests broke out uh, through a lot of Ukraine because of the U.S.-backed coup in 2014, um, when those when in Donetsk, and Luhansk, those protests turned to um, an actual declaration of independence from Ukraine. They wanted to do the same that Crimea was doing. Well, actually, a little different. They were not asking to join Russia. They were simply saying, we are no longer going to be part of Ukraine. And, And Russia helped them to defend themselves against the um, you know the the militias and national guard units many of them recruited from from uh, neo-nazi militias who Ukraine then dispatched to try and reconquer that territory um, and also in Syria I think uh, President Putin and Russia uh, conducted a, a, a canny strategic policy, um, you know, that avoided uh, all-out war with the United States. It avoided, while they conducted airstrikes, which I, I, I don't approve of, but I, they, they managed to, they, Russia, ever since 2011, when, you know, it started to try and challenge the endless aggression and war making by the United States, it always seemed to be able to find uh, a smart middle path to, to not short of all out war. And, um, you know, and that for, for me, frankly, that kind of broke down when instead of simply going into Donbass in February, to, to stop a new escalation of the war by the Ukrainian government. Um, you know, Russia sent its troops uh, invading Ukraine from, you know, three or four different directions. And, and now, however, I, w- I want to add, and this is something I discussed in the article too, um, 
the way Russia has waged this war is actually so different from what has been portrayed in the U.S. and Western media mm-hmm. that the Pentagon has actually the Pentagon uh, leaked uh, and um, sent DIA senior DIA officers to talk to William Arkin, mm-hmm. former Pentagon correspondent of the Washington Post, who's now kind of retired but write, still writes for Newsweek occasionally. Um, and they, they, what they, they told him the DIA's assessment of Russia's conduct of the war, and they explained that Russia has conducted fewer airstrikes in a month of war than the United States did on the first day of its shock and awe invasion of Iraq in, in uh, 2003. They see no evidence that Russian airstrikes are targeting civilians or civilian targets. Um, and, um, and that, and that, what we are seeing is what we, of course, don't see when uh, the United States wages wars and bombing can- campaigns. What we are seeing is that uh, the the weapons Russia is using, like the weapons that the U.S. uses in its wars, are not 100% accurate. And so, yes, there are bombs and missiles and shells hitting apartment complexes and and killing civilians. And um, so this is, you know, but there is this incredible, incredible double standard being applied in which the fact that Russia is doing this and that there are Western reporters on the ground to take pictures and and file reports and stand in front of these buildings... um, Is, is leading to, you know, just a completely different portrayal of the war to American and European audiences than what we saw when the U.S. conducted much, much, much heavier bombing in Iraq and, for instance, in the war on ISIS. I mean, Russia has dropped, you know, two or 3,000 bombs on, on uh, Ukraine the United States and its allies dropped over a hundred thousand uh, in the campaign against ISIS, which which began in uh, 2014, um, climaxed in 2017 under Trump, completely, utterly demolished, uh, you know, large uh, Iraqi and Syrian cities like Mosul and Raqqa. Um, you know, they, um, so so that you know, two wrongs do not make a right. I mean, I, I, I deplore the destruction of, of of Mariupol, but you know, where was where was the sympathy in the of the of the West when the United States completely, completely smashed, shattered the city of Mosul, the second largest city in Iraq. Um, you know, one and a half, but reportedly still one and a half million people in that city when when the assault began, and um, and it was it was left 
in absolute ruins, you know, huge, huge parts of the city, especially the center of the city and the old city of Mosul. You know, you can you can see the Associated Press has a great little sort of photo essay of, of pictures of the ruins of Mosul, you know, that, that people can Google, the AP, AP photos of Mosul. And, you know, there is nothing, nothing, certainly nothing yet in uh, um, in Ukraine that, that, that comes close to the level of destruction. Then they went into Raqqa in uh, Syria. Uh, U.S. officers told Amnesty International was the heaviest artillery uh, bombardment anywhere in the world since the Vietnam War. And they and, and uh, report, reporters like Patrick Coburn from The Independent went into Raqqa, and he said that the destruction was even more total than Mosul. Nick Davies, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate that piece, folks, that you can find at Code Pink, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you. Folks, you've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Garland Nixon, we hope you were informed and enlightened, and we look forward to talking with you all right here tomorrow on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We're out. 